Well, let me bring you up to date real quick before I get started. I had a conversation yesterday, uh, and uh, it's a couple all the way down in southern Indiana who just really enjoy being a part of our worship service with us by means of the technology. And uh, so what a blessing that we not only have, listen, 32 here this morning. Uh, over 30 for the first time in a long time uh, with all the illness and people traveling. But uh, what a blessing to have not only 32 here, but also others who join us by means of the technology. I want to begin this morning by telling you a little snippet about an Austrian, not Australian, from Austria, an Austrian neurologist, psychiatrist, and also a Holocaust survivor. In fact, in 1942, just nine months after marrying his wife, Viktor Frankl and his family were sent to, Nazi, to a Nazi concentration camp. His father died there of starvation and pneumonia. 1944, two years later, Frankl and the surviving members of his family were taken to Auschwitz where his mother and brother were gassed to death. His wife later died uh, of typhus in Bergen-Belsen. Frankel himself spent a total of four, three years in four different concentration camps. Following the war, he became head of the neurology department at the Vienna Polyclinic Hospital. And shortly thereafter, he wrote the book we now know of as Man's Search for Meaning. And he wrote that book over a nine-day period. That is just unbelievable to me. The book was originally titled, A Psychologist Experiences the Concentration Camp, which was released in German in 1946. Are you hearing the date? The war was barely over. One year. The sermon series that we began last Sunday, Searching for Meaning, based on an examination of the Old Testament book Ecclesiastes, naturally leads us to question and questions regarding the meaning of life. In his book, Frankel quotes the philosopher Nietzsche. Nietzsche once wrote, He who has a why to live can bear almost any how. He who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. And I, along with many others, believe this is the core thought of the book. Frankel observed healthy, strong prisoners who died very quickly. And he also observed weak, emaciated prisoners who held on strong. And so he was forced to consider the reason why this might be the case. And his conclusion was that if you have a reason for which to live, you can overcome any obstacle. And you can survive a tremendous amount of pain. On the flip side, is the problem that Ecclesiastes points to. That if you don't have anything to live for, you can have piles of money, 
You can have all kinds of friends. You can have many, many relatives. But if you have no why, then nothing will make you feel fulfilled. Frankel spoke of this in terms of the mass neurosis of modern times, referring to the question and the questions regarding life's meaningfulness. Now, we're not alone in this search for meaning. Many psychologists, authors, uh, academics, and doctors are asking the same question. What is the meaning of life? What, why are we here? There is a world-renowned sociologist who passed away uh, several years ago now by the name of Peter Berger. In a 1973 paper that Berger published, he did an analysis of society for which he was looked down on by his peers in the field of sociology because Peter Berger actually predicted that there would be a reversal of many of the current trends that we are experiencing toward and the process by which our culture is moving away from God and away from the church our society becoming a post-Christian society. And he stated that there would be a reversing of this process. In fact, he said that that reversing of the process is probable because of what he called the pervasive boredom of a life without gods. You hear that? He's not a Christian. And yet he realizes that life without God is boring. It has no meaning. Now, last Sunday we were introduced by means of the first 11 verses of the first chapter to the basic assumption, or maybe I should say the conclusion of the book, which was given in first century Jewish fashion at the very beginning. The assertion that everything is meaningless. But the author, who we're accepting as Solomon, gave us the parameters for his investigation that he made, which are spelled out in verse 14. He says, I have seen everything under the sun, and behold, all is vanity, a striving after the wind. He admits that he's approached the subject from a limited perspective. His examination that we're going to be looking at through the weeks ahead, involves the meaning of life under the sun. In other words, from the perspective of a world without gods, as Peter Berger stated. From this perspective, the fundamental problem of life is not its tragedy. The fundamental problem of life is its triviality. The pervasive boredom. I, I shared this, and, and I, I mean it wholeheartedly. I do not know how to counsel an atheist who is suicidal. If they have come up with the fact that from their side of the situation, life has no meaning and there's no reason to live, the only thing I can say to them is I understand that without a God there is no reason to live. 
And the only thing I can do is try to persuade them to, to begin to understand, to look at, to examine. And I can, I can point them in many directions because there are many good Christian books that we have now that were written by people who at one time were atheists. Uh, that whole collection of books... Uh, uh, now I'm not going to be able to think of his name. Lee Strobel. Uh, Lee Strobel. And the books that he did. A Case for Faith. Lee Strobel was an atheist. He was a journalist out of Chicago. An investigative reporter. And his wife became a Christian out of the works of one of the larger churches in Chicago. And Lee Strobel set out to prove her wrong. Because he was afraid their marriage relationship wouldn't make it if she was a Christian and he was an atheist. And in the course of his investigation, as an investigative reporter, he determined that the evidence supports the belief in a God. Now, the tone and tenor of life according to Ecclesiastes is also established. That life without God is just a, a striving after, a chasing the wind. And so this morning, I've titled my message, The View from the Street. Now, I'm, I borrowed this idea from another minister. I like the idea of using street names. I, I made it my own sermon, and I didn't even choose the street names that he chose. But I kind of like the idea of looking at life from different streets that we can go down. And uh, uh, actually, as I was thinking about it, instead of streets, I later thought, you know, I probably should have referred to them as cul-de-sacs where you can go down and look around, but then you have to go back out because they're dead ends. Uh, and my text is going to be predominantly the rest of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2, but I'm not going to read all of that for you this morning. You are wise, capable, intelligent people, and you can read chapters 1 and 2. But I am going to read uh, some selective verses at times to help you to get the flavor of what Solomon is saying. Uh, but before I do that, I want to go back. I want you to go back with me for a moment to verses 12 and 13 of chapter 1. There, Solomon wrote, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Now, I want you to hear that because one of the commentaries that I wrote pointed out, and I agree with that author, that we can see in just these two verses, the, the, in terms of his quest, the fact that he was, in fact, sincere. Look again. I applied my heart. He, he wasn't just doing a, a open kind of you know, oh, well, I'll, I'll look at this. No, he says, I applied my heart to this study. Not only is it sincere, but it's thorough. To seek and to search out. Two different words looking at different aspects of the investigative process. 
I think it's commendable. Because He says, I did it by wisdom. By wisdom. And not only that, we can see also that it was very comprehensive. All that is done under heaven. Sincere, thorough, commendable, comprehensive, but also notice, obligatory. Obligatory. He felt obliged to do it. It's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. And so the teacher, Solomon, that's, I mean, he's chosen to identify himself as a teacher, so we'll just go with the teacher. He states that he gave himself wholly to this task of acquiring wisdom and knowledge, but he found it to be a miserable work. A miserable work. By the way, a universal theme in wisdom literature and a lot of philosophical writings is that the life of wisdom is the highest of all callings. In fact, Plato says that the task of the philosopher is the purest of all. And here, however, though, Solomon says it's a grievous task. He, He could have actually translated that. We could have actually translated his words. It's a lousy job. A lousy job. Why is his attitude so negative? Why does he say this uh, job that's been imposed upon him uh, by God? Well, I think first of all, he's challenging the widely held notion that pursuit of knowledge fulfills life and seeks a permanent permanent significance. I, because of my uh, interest in academics and studies, I know of several people that their main push in life is to get published so that they'll be exist and stand on after they pass away. Uh, Second, Solomon says he finds it a hopeless task. The answers that he seeks, he really can't find. And third, he believes that all of life is under the rule of a sovereign God anyway. The intellectuals and their work are as much under His authority as anyone else. The Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 18 and following. You might want to jot it down so you can go back and look at it later. 1 Corinthians 3, 18 and following. Paul writes, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he can become wise. For the wisdom of the world is folly with God. For it's written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. And you know what? Things haven't changed. Listen to the frustration in the words penned by Stephen Hawking. I don't know if that name means anything to you, um, but even though he was an atheist, I think he has to be acknowledged as a brilliant theoretical physicist and cosmologist. And his frustration has to do with looking at the world from the perspective of under the sun, from the perspective of being an atheist. Not believing that there is a God. 
And from his perspective, everything had to be explained, or had to be explained since he passed away a few years ago. Everything had to be explained by looking at the world from a purely scientific viewpoint. But listen to where this took him. Here's what he said. The usual scientific approach of constituting a mathematical model cannot answer the question of why there should be a universe for the model to describe. Why does the universe go on bother? Why does the universe go to all the bother of existing? In other words, without a creator God, why in the world is there a world? So, we move into our text. That was just the introduction. In the passage that's before us this morning, the teacher describes his grand experiment and its total failure. And he does this by means of a dialogue with his heart. He's already told us that he went seeking and searching. A few routes or streets. Again, probably dead ends because he found no success. Which of these have you possibly tried? Notice that the first that he attempted was a little venture down Pleasure Parkway. The goal was to determine if pleasures provide an adequate justification for human experience. But he anticipates the results of his experience all the joys were fleeting. Listen to just a few of the verses to get a bit of the flavor. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But but behold, this also was vanity. And I shared with you last week, remember, that that Hebrew word for vanity can also be absurdity. It's just a a nothingness, a vapor. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the days, few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. You've probably heard as often as, as I have that laughter is the medicine for the soul. But think about these words of Solomon. In his search for meaning... Laughter, he said, was insanity, and fun accomplished nothing. Now, he isn't implying that all laughter is to be squelched as an evil. Rather, he's just proposing that as a solution to the basic problems of life, including, in fact, the problem of death, it's a total failure. And one thing I think you should notice as we work our way through Ecclesiastes is that throughout the book, the teacher is going to recommend enjoying life. But here he warns that partaking of pleasure does not in and of itself 
give meaning to our existence. I don't want you to raise your hand, but I'm sure some of you have been at some time in a place when it was called happy hour. Really? You think those people are really there because they're happy? Did you notice how often Solomon used the words I, my, myself? Fifteen times in just eleven verses he uses the personal pronoun I. I made myself gardens and parks. I made myself pools. I bought. This, my friends, is the gospel of selfishness. And selfishness never, never results in feelings of satisfaction, feelings of worth, or meaning. And in verse 9, as in verse 3, he claims that he retained his wisdom in an assurance that he didn't just go berserk in his quest for luxury and pleasure. You see, his problem was not a lack of self-restraint. But what he shows is that any attempt to find a rationale for existence, a reason for living that's based purely on pleasure, purely on affluence, is bound to fail. Even if that attempt is sobered by self-control. And even though he felt he had earned the right to enjoy himself, because he'd work hard for all of this, he concludes that the payoff did not match the effort expanded. Pleasure Park, Parkway, is a dead-end street. That being so, in verse 12, the investigative trip turns down another dead end. <coughs> Intellectual Avenue, which Solomon had already touched on in the closing verses of chapter 1. There we find these words, And I applied my heart to no wisdom and to no madness and folly. I perceive this also is but a striving after the wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. You understand, don't you, that suicide is the highest among people of upper middle class and upper class it is not high among people of the lower echelons of society. At this point, our teacher is saying that what most of us have heard all of our lives, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Again, a flavor of the verses. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart, that this also is vanity. Intellectual avenue. Wisdom. 
Solomon realizes that he cannot, he cannot confine, confine his investigation to wisdom at all, but he has to understand folly because that's the stuff that human nature seems to be made of. And yet he knows from his, his experience that wisdom is like light. It illuminates things. And the wise know where they're going, even if they only know they're headed for trouble. They therefore can avoid some of the disasters and be prepared for others. Fools, however, are always surprised by events that befall them. (coughs) Have you ever heard anybody who just absolutely foolishly spends their money on the first thing they see obsessively, gotta have this, gotta have this, all of a sudden is lamenting the fact that, oh, we don't have enough money to pay our bills. I'm going to tell you right now, I see it on a regular basis on people that come in saying, we heard you have a fund here that is for helping people who are needy. And when I begin to ask them about where they're, what they're doing and how they're using their money and what they're doing in terms of employment, I get the same stories almost all the time. Solomon understood that the wise man can even see death coming and contemplate it. And though this is better than the mindless tumble into death taken by the fool, still the wise can do nothing to stop it. Both the wise and the fools are equal heirs of mortality. 100% of us sitting here this morning are going to die. And this awareness of his own mortality is sobering to the teacher. What this cul-de-sac has taught him is that the only real hope for the intellectual is that they'll achieve lasting fame and be long remembered for their great contributions. And so once again, just like the failure of pleasure to bring satisfaction and meaning, he pronounces all of this to be an illusion. Future generations will no more remember the scholar than they'll remember the beggar in the street. And it's here that Solomon reveals his disappointment, his bitter disappointment in life. Because it had, in effect, played a trick on him. All his life he had thought that he was pursuing a grand task in his quest for wisdom. I mean, think about it. When he was told by God, you can have whatever you want, what did he ask for? (coughs) Just wisdom. Just wisdom. But he had been trying to catch the wind. His his efforts were destined for oblivion. And so in verse 17, he laments, I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. All is vanity and a striving after the wind. And so he tries one more street only to find another dead end. How about a trip down hard work alley or even toilsome throughway? I couldn't find a little sign that had toilsome on it. <laughs> toilsome throughway. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. 
Yet he will be the master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and I gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and all the striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? I don't think I have to tell you how often toil or toil came up in that short passage. And the word toil here moves us out of the quest for wisdom and back into the hard work, the labor for, for wealth and for its resources rewards as we saw in verses 1 to 11. Solomon does not believe that hard work is vanity, that it's foolish. He simply rejects the view that life is somehow made worthwhile by working to provide for our posterity. Who knows how long it'll be before the family fortune is squandered. <coughs> I know of a family who in just two generations went from an abundance of more than they could spend or should have been able to spend to grandchildren who had squandered and lost all of it. Again, it's not that he chooses to despair, but he decides he might as well disillusion himself. He'll no longer live by the myth that hard work and well-earned wealth will validate a person's life. Otherwise, obsession with fulfillment through work and accomplishments ultimately leads to the crisis point at which one's whole life is seen to be lived for nothing. I, I border on this. This is where I struggle in my own message. Because I'm going to be honest with you. The thought of retiring, that, that just drives me nuts. I can't even think about that as a possibility. And it's not that I'm trying to get meaning out of life by working. I just can't imagine what Berger talked about as a pervasive boredom uh, without working uh, that could be there. But, but Solomon... He's, he's, he realizes that everything that we work for can be nullified in an instant by death. And so, even though he was a, a great businessman, and if you read those chapters of, in Kings, man, he just he did this and that, and people were coming and trading, and, and he was just accumul accumulating wealth for his nation. Uh, the point here is not what happens to his wealth after he dies. His point is what happens to the person as we strive to achieve that wealth. 
the damage that is done to friendships, to family, and even to oneself. I think it was Cat Stevens. I might be wrong. But the, the song about uh, the little boy who, who he just, you know, he's looking forward to daddy coming home. Harry uh, it was Harry Chapin, okay. Cats in the Cradle is the name of the song. Cats in the Cradle and the Silver Spoon. Little boy blue and the man in the moon. When are you coming home, dad? I don't know when, but we'll get together then. And what happens in the song? Eventually the little boy grows up and the dad is saying, when are you coming home, son? I don't know when, but we'll get together then. All of that work and toil for nothing. Families are lost. Friendships are lost. And so Solomon actually attempts to do a bit of counseling regarding the enjoyment of life. Now, please don't understand this in a rigidly literal sense as if Solomon were saying that the enjoyment of food and possessions is the goal of life. That's not what he's saying. He's saying eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow never comes is something that is not true. Not at all. In context, what he's saying is we have to always interpret and understand God's Word as everything is coming from God. He insists that people should learn how to enjoy the life and the return that they give from their labor. In fact, the ability to enjoy the good things of life is itself the gift of God. John chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. Jesus says, I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he'll be saved. And we'll go out and go, go in and find pasture. The thief comes to, ske- to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So here, it's all right here. In Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, when he asks... Apart from Him, who can eat or drink or have any enjoyment? You see, the context implies that the Him refers to God. His investigative trips down Pleasure Parkway, Intellectual Avenue, and Toilsome Thruway, the view from the street, the view from the perspective of life lived under the sun, has confirmed that life is empty without God. So where does this leave us? Here's a question that I want to leave with you. Just what is your God if it's not a who? Because you see, if, if the Creator who is a who is not your God, you've got a God. There's something else that you are placing up there as the most important thing in life that you're striving for. Who is your God? Who are you? Who are you? Verse 26, the last verse of chapter 2. For to the one who pleases Him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he's given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. You see, here's his point. 
As Christians, we've been given wisdom. It's in that book that I encourage you to read on a daily basis. But to the fool, and that word fool doesn't mean stupid. It means to the person who is amoral. The person who does not believe in a God. To that person, all of life is just a gathering and collecting. Getting up in the morning to go to work so you can come home and go to bed so you can get up in the morning to go to work so you can come home and go to bed so you can get up in the morning and go to work so you can come up and go... Monday to Friday. So that when the weekend gets here, you can get up to go out in the garden and work so you can go to bed and get up and go out in the garden and... Without God, life is trivial and without meaning. A vanity and a striving after the wind. You see, the sovereignty of God is implicit all the way through Ecclesiastes. And in this concept in verse 26, God is in control of the final chapter of our lives. And this verse is sometimes taken to mean from Solomon's viewpoint that divine activity is hopelessly arbitrary and little more than an equivalent for fate. But that's also far off. The verse does not present God as capricious, but does relate to the biblical idea of the grace of God. We can't earn it, but in love, God graciously provides. To believe that everything happened by mere chance, to me that's unthinkable. As we even saw in Hawking, as he struggles to understand the why of existence. To believe that one's life is ruled by impersonal fate has to be intolerable. And so we come to the reality of the matter. That to believe that life is controlled by a personal God is the only place that we can find comfort. Let's pray.